This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The Great Recession of 2008 impacted the United States economy for many years, with some lasting effects even felt today. Numerous companies, large and small, shut their doors. Millions of people lost their jobs, and retirement savings were depleted. To assist the country, the government took two approaches, monetary policy from the Federal Reserve and fiscal policy from Congress. But is there another way to deal with a financial crisis? Our next guest, Yair Listikin, who is a law professor at Yale University, says yes. He proposes an underutilized tool for preventing or managing a recession, namely the law. It's a new book in which he uses examples from the New Deal to the Eurozone crisis to show how existing or new laws can be used to ease an economic crisis when monetary policies aren't enough. The book is titled Law and Macroeconomics, Legal Remedies to Recessions. And it's a pleasure to have uh, Professor Listikin joining us here on the phone. Also with me in studio, Peter Conti-Brown, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School. Yeah, great to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you, Peter. Great seeing you. Always a pleasure. Thank you. So you start us out here with this correlation between the law and macroeconomics and how there can be an impact. So at the most basic level, law has law really affects spending. And I think people will will be familiar with that just from their daily lives. Like often, if you want to spend, even if you have the money, often the uh, you may or may not be able to, and how you spend is affected by by law. So, uh, so the argument is that by changing those rules based on the business cycle, we can uh, we can raise spending when we think that that's something that is something that is important. And we can reduce spending uh, if we think that is important. I actually focus on uh, on raising spending because I argue that that's the bigger social problem, at least when interest rates are zero. Well, it's a real pleasure for me personally to be here and uh, have this conversation with Yair. This project has been, uh, uh, just to give you, uh, our listeners, a little bit of historical context, when legal scholars have been thinking about how economics can shape uh, uh, sort of the institutional design of public policy, they're mostly thinking about, you know, individual uh, actions at the margin, so-called microeconomics, how do choices of individuals when we aggregate them affect the way the world works. And yeah, you're, you're working on something very different, and, it's, uh, and the difference is, is pretty stark. How does, how does your approach to law and macroeconomics differ from the generations that have preceded you as uh, in the academy uh, in joining these two disciplines together? So I think the, the difference is actually similar to the difference between microeconomics and macroeconomics uh, uh, within economics. So, uh, so James Tobin famously said that it takes a lot of, of marginal improvements in the microeconomy to make up for one episode of, of excess unemployment. Uh, and right now, historically, law and economics has been very focused on, uh, entirely focused, really, on making those marginal improvements. And my argument is that, uh, that there are times where those marginal improvements can be dwarfed by, by something as, as simple as, uh, as increasing spending uh, and reducing unemployment when unemployment is excessive. 
So, Gary, when when we think about these kinds of questions about the uh, the macroeconomy, about excessive unemployment, about the the levers that policy makers might be able to pull in shaping that institutional environment, I mean, the first thing that I certainly think of, and I don't think I'm alone in this, even though this is what I do for a living, first thing I think of central banks, right? Central bankers, the Federal Reserve. That's this is their corner of the sandbox. Why shouldn't we just continue on that trend, just letting central bankers be the primary policy chiefs over the macro economy? What do you, why do you see legislators uh, and fiscal policymakers uh, and, and others uh, in, in a different context having uh, an important seat at that table? Isn't that why we created central banks, so that we could keep them away from that table because they're likely to mess things up rather than improve them? Absolutely, Peter. So my, my argument and my argument about the role for law is very, very much focused on times where central bankers just don't have the tools. So most obviously, this would be when interest rates are confined by the zero lower bound. So the central bank, unemployment is high. The central bank would like to stimulate the economy. It usually does this conventionally by lowering interest rates, but interest rates are zero, and, uh, and it just doesn't have much room at all to, to lower them. So that's, uh, that's the focus. Now, central banks can call on unconventional monetary policy, like quantitative easing uh, and things like that, to, uh, to try to expand the, the economy. But the, the effectiveness of, uh, of these policies is, is quite limited. And it also really pushes central banks into areas where we're not used to having them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if... if with quantitative easing, of course, central banks were, were purchasing trillions of dollars in assets. Uh, that's, that's not the role that we normally have in mind for the Fed, let's say. Uh, it's, uh, it's just sort of bringing them, the Fed's always incredibly important, but by purchasing trillion dollars in assets and things like that, they've just kind of expanded their, uh, their authority by a lot. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, it's not clear that it's all that effective. Hmm. So it's, it's not enough, and the only way it could ever be enough would be if the Fed just uh, really opened the spigot. So we're, I'm, what I'm hearing from you is a really interesting discussion of kind of a cost-benefit approach to what the right tool might be or what the right institution might be given the, these extreme contexts. And, of course, um, you know, your book does a, a beautiful job of describing just how high the stakes are when we find ourselves in a financial panic uh, with with profound adverse impacts on on the economy. Uh, let me ask you, though, if there's something uh, more principled here than just utilitarian. And by that, I mean, let's get away a little bit from costs and benefits. But is there something about the uh, about just democracy that calls for more politics here uh, in in uh, engaging in some of the problems of of these kinds of crises, and is that what your project is? Is trying to have a more principled approach of democratic governance to grab control of this, or is that? Are you talking about something different? Uh, I would say there's an element of of uh, of that, uh, but but only an element. Mm-hmm. So there's an. I I do think I am concerned about the power of central bankers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think that, uh, and and I like central bankers, uh, but I do think it's it's critical for there to be limits on their power. And I see that 
treating them as the only game in town uh, for fighting recessions is is pushing very strongly uh, is pushing them very strongly towards uh, towards ever more uh, expansive roles. So I I I just I don't like that as right. uh, as a matter of of democracy. I also don't think it's all that effective. Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. so there's the, the two things are, are in concert here. But, uh, but I do think that it's better to have, from a democratic perspective, to have lots of it's checks and balances, right. lots of people with, some, with a little bit of power rather than uh, one or two uh, sort of focal points of power. Uh, which which are hard to constrain. That's really interesting. So let's let's kind of walk through a life cycle of what your um, your ideas, your research, your proposals mm-hmm. might represent. So it's it's um, let's say it's August two thousand seven. The mm-hmm. housing markets in the United States are roiling. Mm-hmm. The the U.S. Federal Reserve is uh, watching this using regulatory levers primarily. And then, uh, uh, you know, using what we call in central banking moral suasion or kind of jawboning the markets, you know, mm-hmm. saying, like, okay, things are pretty contained in the housing market. Things are going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Fast forward a year. We've seen Bear Stearns collapse. Now Lehman has collapsed. Now there are really deep interventions from a regulatory and crisis intervention perspective. And now the central bank has dropped interest rates to zero. It's now November 2008. Mm-hmm. Where do you come in? What what kind of place would the Listikin model of law mm-hmm. and macroeconomics do, say, on November first, th- two thousand eight? So November first, two thousand eight, interest rates are zero. Uh, unemployment is uh, is increasing at at nearly unprecedented rates. Mm-hmm. So I would argue, let's take. I would argue that there are lots of. Uh, options, and that's part of the argument of the book. But let's take one in particular. Uh, why don't we take utility regulation? Okay. So, uh, so let's say you're a utility regulator, and uh, and a utility has come to you uh, and wants to raise rates, mm-hmm. uh, and they have what in ordinary times would be a reasonable case okay. uh, for raising rates. Uh, I argue that that would be if you. If you allowed the increase, if you permit, if you approve the increase, that would be the functional increase, uh, the functional equivalent of a tax increase uh-huh. on on all the utilities customers that they yep. now have less disposable income because they are uh, because they are paying more for utilities mm-hmm. uh, at at a time when there's not enough spending when we're cutting taxes. To uh, or we're thinking of cutting taxes to increase spending, or we, we would like to raise interest to lower interest rates to increase spending, but we can't. Mm-hmm. The utility regulator should uh, should hold the rates down to put more money in the pocket of the uh, of the utility consumer. This would put less money in the pocket of the utility investor. Uh, this can't go on forever. Yeah. Uh, the the utility regulator would have to say that. We know we are holding rates down, mm-hmm. uh, and we are going to allow extraordinary rate increases uh, once the economy uh, comes back to health. Uh, so the idea here is transferring uh, recession risk from utility investors, uh, from utility consumers who are disproportionately poor because the poor spend the greater proportion of their income on utilities, and transferring it from them. Uh, from the consumers who currently bear the recession risk to the investors 
who by definition have access to capital. Uh, and utility rates would be fair and reasonable over the business cycle rather than year by year, which is what they currently are. So I, I think this is really interesting, and, and it's, got, it's got a logic to it that uh, most of our listeners will understand, right, that it's the logic is stimulus. So we've got the metaphors we often use in macroeconomics are health-related, right? So you've got uh, a patient on uh, the gurney in the ER and uh, get the defibrillator because we, we've got to shock this thing back into, into play. Usually the doctor is the central banker, but sometimes it's the legislator doing fiscal stimulus, cutting taxes or even or increasing spending. And Yair says, well, we actually need a team of doctors. And here's the other one, the utility regulator. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So my question is, what, we, you've already answered really well, I think, the question of why the central banking doctor specialist on that team has to be there but can't be the only one there. But why, why isn't what you just described much better just handled through conventional fiscal stimulus? You said it was a functional equivalent of a tax cut. So why not just cut taxes, right? Why not go through why, – why go sideways when you can take it head on? Sure. Well, so there are a couple of responses. First of all – Cutting taxes or raising government spending may not be enough because they're entangled with law. So here I'm thinking of something like shovel-ready projects. Yeah. So shovel-ready projects had uh, had money. For our listeners who aren't familiar with that term, can you tell uh, tell them what the shovel-ready project is? So in in 2008 or 2009, rather, uh, the Obama stimulus package included uh, many tens of billion dollars for what were called shovel-ready projects. Uh, and the idea was that as soon as the law was passed, this money would start being spent uh, on doing things like repaving roads mm-hmm. or something like that. Right. Uh, just projects that literally the idea was the shovel would, would, would go into the ground the next day after the money was appropriated uh, and Congress approved. So that was the theory. Uh, now, Congress... In addition to to appropriating the money uh, and spending the money, they attached a lot of conditions to the money. Uh, so, for example, the money uh, was uh, the money could only be spent uh, on contractors who satisfied all sorts of conditions about the wages they paid uh, and uh, and and various procedures along those lines. Those. Those those conditions took a long time to to enact and turn into uh, into something uh, tangible by the by the Department of Labor, for example. Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening was the the programs were delayed, Uh, and uh, they were delayed not because the money wasn't there; the money was was ready. Uh, They were delayed because the law was not responding to the crisis. Ordinarily, uh, it's okay if something gets delayed in order to do it right. You know, that's a, that's a trade-off we'll often want to make, uh, and that's why we have a lot of laws that delay things. But in, uh, at a time when we desperately want to spend money, that, uh, that sort of restriction is much more costly. But Congress did not, uh, did not 
to not account for that. So on the one hand, they're spending money because they're appropriating money because they know they need to spend now. They want shovel-ready projects, but with the other hand, with the legal hand, so the fiscal hand is giving and the legal hand is taking away. I want the hands working together. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Dan Loney in our studios in Philadelphia, joined by Peter Connie Brown of the Wharton School. Joined on the phone by Yair Listikin, who is the author of the book Law and Macroeconomics, Legal Remedies to Recessions. So, Yair, when you talk about, and Peter mentions all of these different kind of doctors that would be coming to the table, one of the areas that that I thought about was something like the judiciary and how that would be playing a role in this process and, and to a degree using that as, as an agent to stimulate the economy. Yes. Very much so. You know, judges have a lot of power, and uh, and if by they can either you know they're they're another doctor, uh, yeah. and they could be they could be potentially part of the solution. And to give uh, to give an example of that, I would say take something like the question of whether or not a judge should issue an injunction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's say there is a dispute over whether a a development satisfies a uh, satisfies zoning law. So typically, the plaintiff in that dispute will come to the judge and say, "Before before the question is decided, you need to prevent uh, the building from being built, uh, prevent construction until we decide who's right and who's wrong, and only then can construction happen." Uh, and the judge makes a decision over whether or not to allow or not allow. Uh, if the judge allows, it's not like the plaintiff has no remedies. Uh, the plaintiff instead – now, the building may be built by the time the dispute is settled, but the plaintiff could get damages, right? There's, uh, the plaintiff could get some money to compensate them for the violation of zoning law. Uh, in right now – the way these preliminary injunctions are decided ignores the business cycle. Uh, it's the judge, uh, the judge will or won't uh, sort of stop the project based on sort of factors that are business cycle invariant. My argument is that the judge should consider the business cycle. And if, uh, if unemployment is really high, then the, then the judge should be more likely to allow the project to go forward and then solve any potential violations with money damages rather than uh, rather than stopping the project uh, and waiting, perhaps uh, delaying the project in the bust and perhaps finally only allowing it in uh, in a subsequent boom. Great. Yeah, if you could um, right now, I'm going to make you the grand poobah of America mm-hmm. and you get to uh, wave your arm and one thing, just one, though, changes. <laughs> What is the one thing that you would, what one law that you would re- rewrite or, uh, you know, uh, power that you would grant, uh, institution you'd create? What, what, is, what is it, the one thing that you would do that would, uh, that you think would better equip the government to respond to crises? Um, uh, and, and let's assume away any political process that would have to get it there. You just get to create it. What would that be? I think the utility regulation example is uh, because utilities are a multi-trillion-dollar business. You would uh, you would you would quickly have substantial stimulus or not based on uh, based on based. It would just be a new site 
of, uh, of counter-cyclical policy that I think would be quantitatively very significant. Mm. So that's, uh, that's one. And then before that, or, or after that, I would also say we want to make fiscal policy better than it already is. There's oh, a lot that could be done with fiscal policy that we haven't done. And I agree with you that fiscal policy is, uh, is a good doctor to have involved, yeah. but uh, a doctor that wasn't so effective in the last crisis. Maybe needs to go do a fellowship after his residency. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you talk in the book about proposing a, a a new government agency called the Office of Fiscal and Regulatory Affairs to manage all of this activity. Mm-hmm. How would that type of of an of an agency actually play out and work? Sure. So the idea here with uh, with with an agency, one thing I've noticed is, and probably most people uh, have seen this many times in their life, if it's if something is not someone's primary job, they, it has a tendency to slide. So my concern with, with this, uh, with sort of encouraging lots of different regulators to, uh, to go ahead and, uh, and consider macroeconomics is they have lots of other jobs, and they, they wouldn't necessarily, uh, they wouldn't necessarily uh, remember in the next uh, bad recession to, uh, to start considering macro. Uh, the, the solution is to create a, uh, some agency or office whose job it is to consider macro. Uh, and then they would, uh, they would follow what's going on in the macro economy. And then when things were bad, they could then instruct all the other agencies to, uh, to go ahead and, uh, and, and start doing the things that they had already thought about doing to enhance the macro economy. Uh, so it wouldn't just be sort of catch as catch can. There'd be right. someone whose job it is to coordinate the policy uh, and who would be expert in macroeconomics. Well, and you, you're talking also uh, in part about the fact that uh, that this agency should have input whenever new legislation is being created. So how realistic is that uh, that Congress would go along with this? Uh, so the idea would be that uh, that we could use someone who always thinks about macro. So one example that I like to give uh, with, is re- with respect to the, the Trump tax cut, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, that I heard many, many, many different policy perspectives on, on that act. I didn't really hear uh, too, much, too much about its macroeconomic consequences. Uh, at least as a as a countercyclical force, and they were significant. I think that having an office along those lines that would kind of pipe in, uh, potentially along the lines. So the Con- Congressional Budget Office uh, studies the effect on the deficit, but they're not particularly. They, only in extreme times do they look at. Uh, at uh, how something does over the course of the business cycle, I'd like some parallel office that would uh, that would focus on 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 booms and busts. All right, yeah, yeah. Now I'm going to turn the telescope telescope around. You're going to look through the other end. So mm-hmm. uh, now you don't get to be the grand poobah, and you've got to confront political realities. Mm-hmm. What do you see as? Uh, uh, and I know that you're not a political scientist or anything like that. But when we, you know, just thinking through these proposals and their implications for the process that would there would be to create them. How do you, what do you see as kind of a political path 
for uh, improving fiscal policy, for having conversations about law. Well, as I read your book, you know, it's it's one of the things I like most about it is it's all over the map on our conventional political divides. There's a very left liberal story that you can tell out of this book. There's a very libertarian right story that you can tell out of this book. Um, and and you, you're kind of you're speaking to many audiences. So talk to us a little bit about the politics of getting of implementing things like uh, 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 counter cyclical utility regulation, mm-hmm. things like a. Uh, either a congressional or executive office that would be more sensitive uh, to to macroeconomic implications for uh, for policy. Um, how where, where's the, where's the, where are the political lanes that you would travel in to see some of your policy goals accomplished? So one of the political lanes is exactly what you just described. That the hope is that there's there's the potential for some common ground uh, following this. So what I like to I like to give an example of and I've spoken at uh, at both more right leaning and left leaning institutions and and at both I tell them you know here is a, a chance for you to do something you already want to do but for macroeconomic reasons mm-hmm. so uh, so on the on the libertarian side it would be deregulatory. Mm-hmm. So there are certain cases in which deregulation is, uh, is can be stim- can provide a stimulus, uh, and I would say to people, well, here's another argument for deregulation that you can use. Now it would have to be deregulation in a in a time of high unemployment. It would it would be limited, but it would still be something you could potentially want. And then the flip side is I've also spoken at uh, environmental schools, and I say that. Well, you could impose environmental mandates mm-hmm. uh, and give another argument for them. It's not just that we want to, to save the environment. We want to do it to reduce unemployment. Mm. Uh, so the hope would be that, uh, that it's not, it doesn't map so well onto, uh, onto the typical political divides, and that in that sort of in that, uh, in that lack of clear political valence, there's a potential for for some common ground. So where does the research take you from here? I'm smiling a little bit right now because our listeners should know that in addition to being a dear friend, Yair and I are co-authors on a project that unites kind of my, my uh, our, our common thinking about central banking and this idea that law has a role to play to structure the process and outcomes of central bank decision-making. So putting that to the side, uh, where, where do you go from here? What's the next project in terms of law and macroeconomics? So it's interesting that uh, I, I, I was going to go exactly where, uh, where, where you just pointed it out, that I think mm. that uh, the role of law in central banking is something that you've been interested in for a long time, uh, Peter. But I think that there's, there's a lot of work to be done uh, over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, But then in addition... There is, I think, there's a lot of fields. So, for example, uh, bankruptcy law. Hmm. Uh, I, I, bankruptcy law right now is, uses a very simple uh, sort of model of credit provision mm-hmm. that has no sort of uh, boom-bust asset cycles. Interesting. Uh, and no collateral. There's no real, there is collateral, but the collateral cycles, the leverage cycles, that uh, economists have really been pushing upon over the last, uh, you know, since the crisis, 
they just it doesn't appear in bankruptcy law. And that's fascinating uh, because that's a judicially intensive process, right? Bankruptcy, and so having judges oversee a process that is just uh, you know forged in a, a furnace of microeconomics. You're saying that judges actually have a policy role to play at the level of business cycle through those same that same apparatus. Yes, very, very much so. I think that they, uh, you know, and and it's and bankruptcy by its very nature is a collective decision process. We uh, we we already know that we're affecting many, many parties. It's not a simple contract dispute, which is sort of creditor debtor debtor. Uh, there's creditor and many, many debtors. So there's there's a lot of room for policy, and it's just this uh, this odd thing where. The, the, the most exciting research on credit in, uh, on, the economic, on the economic side, has, which is macroeconomically oriented, has not really been brought into our thinking about bankruptcy, which is using economics that is, that is just older uh, and partially out of date. Yair, thank you for coming on and talking about the book. It's a pleasure uh, having the chance to to spend some time uh, discussing this with you. Thank you, sir. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.